This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In today's exclusive brief, we'll talk about choking off Crimea, allies' demand for LGBTQ plus rights, and joining the EU, finally. and today is Saturday, November 11th, 2023. Happy Veterans Day, Armistice Day, and Liberation Day of Kherson. You're listening to the Ukraine War Brief Podcast, where we deliver the news from Ukraine with added insights, explainers, and analysis. And today, we're releasing statements made exclusively to Ukraine War Brief from the US and the UK State Departments regarding LGBTQ rights. Let's start with clarifications, omissions, and errors. In a previous episode, we described the G7 as basically a club consisting of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK, and the US, that gets together every year to talk about what's going on in the world and coordinate global economic policy. We wanted to add some context here. The Group of Seven, otherwise known as G7, is an informal political forum for the major developed economies dedicated to liberal democracy and rules-based world order. The G7's informal structure belies its importance. According to data obtained from Credit Suisse's 2022 Global Wealth Data Book, the democratic nations of the G7 hold 61% of the world's wealth, despite representing just 15% of the world's population. The European Union is a non-enumerated member of the G7. China, according to the data book, holds $85 billion in assets, or 18% of global wealth. However, much of that wealth is tied up in real estate and the Chinese economy is faltering. For the first time in… forever? Chinese GDP shrank last quarter, while the U.S. grew at an annualized rate of 4.9%. Since China's paper wealth is likely inflated, we estimate the G7's percentage of global wealth is actually higher than 61%. On Monday's episode, we said President Zelensky appeared on the Face the Nation over the weekend. He appeared on Meet the Press. We also made the assertion that China would invade Taiwan within the next five years. This could do with some context as well. Strong claims require lots of strong evidence, so we'll release a special episode with analysis to discuss in much more detail. For now, suffice it to say, a better way to state our position is that China is highly likely to attempt to bring Taiwan under its control within five years, and the invasion might not look like a full-scale military assault. Thanks for your understanding as we work to bring you news and analysis. Now let's talk about the front. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine releases a daily report at 6 a.m. each morning that includes a breakdown of Russian losses for the past 24 hours. The losses that were reported to have occurred on Tuesday, November 7th through Wednesday, November 8th included 1,670 personnel, 13 tanks, 38 armored personnel carriers, 50 artillery systems, 5 multiple launch rocket systems, 2 anti-aircraft systems, and 13 tactical operational drones. From Thursday, November 9th through Friday, November 10th, Ukrainians demobilized 1,880 personnel, 16 tanks, 21 armored personnel carriers, a stunning 50 artillery systems, 5 multiple launch rocket systems, 6 anti-aircraft systems, and 28 tactical operational drones. 
Ukraine had a particularly busy day on Thursday, inflicting massive casualties on the Russians, especially in the Odessa operational direction in Kherson and occupied Krym. Our source on the ground, and if you're listening, you're a jerk with how many times I think you're dead, but I'm so happy you're alive. Also reported that the armed forces of Ukraine did a heavy cleanup of Russian positions in Avdiivka direction in the past couple of days. We will be guided today by Ukrainian Commander-in-Chief Zaluzhny's op-ed in The Economist. The war is now in a positional stage, meaning there is a fierce fighting all along the front, with neither side able to advance. In the long term, this benefits Russia, which can draw on its vast reserves of conscripts to wear down Ukrainian defenses. We can see this in the Battle of Avdiivka in Donetsk Oblast. Despite taking massive losses, Russia still successfully pushed into Stepovata Day through meat assaults, west of the railway tracks. Yesterday, Russia made slow but real progress in Stepove, Novokalinivka, Umansk, Tonenke, Siverne, Vodyane, and even Avdiivka itself. The only settlement around Avdiivka that is holding on, as of now, is Marienka. The risk of the troops there is increasing, despite Ukraine killing 10,000 soldiers, destroying 100 tanks, 250 armored vehicles, and 7 Su-25 fighter jets in just three weeks. With the possible exception of Krynke in Kherson Oblast, the rest of the front remains relatively frozen. In Svatova, Russians are assaulting Liman Parshi, Sinkiivka, and Orlyanka. Around Bakhmut, Russians attack Klishivka, assaulting from Priyutna towards Staromayorske and Levadna. In Zaporizhia, positional fighting is still dragging on in Verbove and Novoprokopivka. Ukraine needs to break out of the positional deadlock and shift to maneuver warfare of movement and speed. We saw maneuver warfare last year with the liberation of vast swaths of territory in Kharkiv and half of Kherson Oblast. We are seeing the AFU shift tactics, identifying and targeting Russian weak points along the front, since so many forces have been deployed to assault Avdiivka in occupied Donetsk. Ukraine and its allies need to get creative technologically, strategically, and in wartime production. To accomplish this, Zaluzhny lists five key capabilities – Prioritize acquiring air power, electronic warfare, counter-battery fire, mine breaching tech, and building up reserves. The first, air power, is the most critical on this list of critical things. Russia continues to bombard the AFU along the front and behind enemy lines. The Ukrainian Air Force's morning reports, like GSAFUs, cover events from the previous 24 hours, but aren't necessarily released daily. Six reports were released from October 31st through November 8th. 59 out of 92 Shahed-131-136 kamikaze drones, 5 out of 11 known KH-59 cruise missiles, and 3 out of 3 Iskander-K ballistic missiles were destroyed. 3 Iskander-M missiles, 1 KH-31 missile, and 1 Onyx P-800 anti-ship missile were launched at Ukraine. Finally, Russia lobbed 700 glide bombs from aircraft all along the front over the past week. The Shaheds are usually launched from three places. First, from Primorsk Akhtask, Russia, which is across the Sea of Azov and due east of occupied Krym. Second, from Mirchauda, which is on the southern tip of the Kerch Peninsula in occupied Krym. Shaheds launched from these two locations typically target grain storage facilities and other critical infrastructure in the ports of Ismail and Reni, Odessa Oblast, near the border with Romania. They also target the city of Odessa itself, Kherson and Mykolaiv. Third, from Kursk, Russia, to the northeast of Sumy, Chernihiv and Kharkiv oblasts, to the Russian border. These often, though not always, travel to Kyiv or as far east as Lviv. On the night of November 3rd alone, Russia launched 48 Shaheds, but only 24 were shot down. And during a 24-hour period on November 6th, 
Russia lobbed over 100 glide bombs primarily towards Kherson. Russia's air superiority is preventing Ukraine from breaking out of the attritional phase of the war. During the full-scale invasion, Ukraine only had 120 planes, of which a third were usable. While Attackum's strikes have pushed Russian fighter jets and helicopters further behind the front line, Russian drones have taken their place. Ukraine needs to dominate the sky. In order to accomplish this, Zaluzhny claims, electronic warfare capabilities need to be dramatically improved. 65% of Ukraine's EW capability was built during the Soviet era. Ukraine needs better signals intelligence capabilities to soak up the tiny electromagnetic waves drones and other tech give off. Of course, Ukraine needs to dramatically expand its drone production capabilities as well. Third, counter-battery fire. More of it, please. Ukraine needs shells, shells, and more shells. And those shells need to penetrate Russia's enhanced EW capabilities, which mask the location of Russia's artillery. Zaluzhny said artillery, rocket, and missile fire makes up to 60-80% to of all military activities right now. Every. Single. Day. Covered in the General Staff reports, in this episode, Ukrainian civilians were injured or killed due to Russian shelling and airstrikes. 925 settlements in Chernihiv, Sumy, Kharkiv, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, Mykolaiv, and Kherson oblasts have been shelled since October 31st. With effective counter-battery fire, Ukraine could destroy the source of the shelling, save civilians and soldiers alike, and conduct more effective offensive operations. Fourth, mine-clearing tech. Ukraine is now one of the most densely mined places in the world. Western kit hasn't been sufficient. The AFU can't advance beyond the current mine front lines without better mine-clearing gear. Without physically moving forces into currently occupied areas, Ukraine can't take control. Ukraine could, of course, circumvent heavily mined areas along the front, but demining operations must take place. Finally, Zaluzhny laid out the necessity of building reserves. This won't be a quick war and Ukraine can't pull experienced fighters from the front to train new troops. Training centers within Ukraine's territory also make for tempting Russian targets. Zaluzhny seems to be hinting that more training needs to happen in allied countries. He also called for internal reforms, including digitizing draft registration to crack down on those evading military service. As one source told us, even defective North Korean shells and tanks from the 1970s still sometimes work, especially when you have a ton of them. While we like to make fun of the Russians and their ineptitude, we know better than to underestimate the enemy, and Ukraine's top military brass doesn't appear to be underestimating the Russians either. Now, let's take a closer look along the front. The Khortitsa Operational Strategic Group is responsible for the Kupinsk, Liman, and Bakhmut axes in the northeastern part of Ukraine. Russia is conducting offensive operations in this operational direction, on November 9th, Russian forces made a confirmed advance just south of Pershotrovneva, 24 kilometers east of Kupinsk in Kharkiv Oblast. Fighting is occurring to the northeast, east, and southeast of Kupinsk in Sinkivka, Petropavlivka, and Kislivka, respectively. Ukraine used Western equipment to counterattack the northeast of the city. In Luhansk Oblast, positional fighting is ongoing around Svatova, 15 kilometers northwest and southwest, in Stelmachivka and Novoyehorivka, respectively. Around Kreminna, positional fighting continues in Dibrova and Torske, to the southwest and west, respectively. Ukraine used Western kit to counterattack to the west of Svatova as well. Around Liman, the general staff said Russians are conducting offensive operations near Stelmachivka, Novoyehorivka, and the Serebrensky Nature Reserve. 
Russian mill bloggers claimed the Russians made unspecified gains in the woods there. But we don't listen to Russian mill bloggers. Moving down to Bakhmut in Donetsk Oblast, the general staff said Russians carried out nearly 40 attacks northwest and southwest of Bakhmut between November 8th and November 10th, a notable increase. In the southeast of the city, geolocated footage from November 9th indicates that the Russians have advanced towards Klishivka and now hold positions just east of the settlement and west of the railway line. Geolocated footage from around November 7th shows that the enemy have advanced south of Barkhivsky Reservoir, three kilometers northwest of Bakhmut. Quick note here, the ISW assessed that the attacks around Bakhmut are likely opportunistic attacks. Both Ukraine and Russia have redistributed forces to other areas along the front, and both sides are taking advantage of it. Since the Russian forces around Bakhmut are weak and disorganized, aw, sad because they've sent troops to Avdiivka and Kupinsk for offensive operations. The Tavria Operational Strategic Group is responsible for the Avdiivka, Marinka, Shakhtarske and Zaporizhia axes in the central eastern and southeastern part of Ukraine. Russian forces continued their bloody assault on Avdiivka on November 9th and November 10th, making gains near Stepove. Several Russian mill bloggers claimed that Russian forces made gains near Stepove, six kilometers northwest of Avdiivka and are consolidating new positions near the settlement. The Russians advanced along the railway line to the northwest and are trying to break through Ukrainian defenses in Vodyana to the southwest. Ukrainian Tavrysk Group of Forces spokesperson Colonel Oleksandr Stupun noted that the Russians increased their use of aviation around Avdiivka using Ka-52 and Mi-8 helicopters and Su-25 attack aircraft. The general staff reported that Russian forces with aviation support conducted unsuccessful attacks southeast of Novokolinova and Keramik, northwest of Avdiivka, Stepove and Siverne, to the northwest, Parvomaiske to the southeast, and Avdiivka itself. The AFU evacuated civilians from Avdiivka coke plant. Quick note on the name of Parvomaiske here. Ukraine really needs to change it after the war. It literally means the 1st of May, and is a hangover from the Soviet occupation. The 1st of May was celebrated by the Soviets to mark the transition from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian one, and replaced Tsarist celebrations with Red celebrations. There are many Parvomaiskes in Ukraine. And that's because the Soviet Union was really original with their names. Moving further south to Donetsk city now, and Marienka to the southwest, Stupun noted that Russians are concentrating offensive efforts near Marienka and Novomikhailivka. The general staff reported that Russian forces conducted 65 unsuccessful attacks near these two settlements in the past three days. In Vuhledar, 30 kilometers southwest of Donetsk city, Ukrainians took advantage of weaker troops and made advances near Mykilske just to the southwest of Vuhledar, according to geolocated footage. In the Shakhtarske operational direction, it was relatively quiet. The Ukrainians defended against Russian attacks near Staromayorske and south of Prachestivka. Ukrainian forces took advantage of Russian redeployments and conducted counteroffensive operations in western Zaporizhia Oblast, south of Orihiv. They made advances in Verbova that was confirmed by geolocated footage to the east of Robotone. The AFU also made advances near Novoprokopiv to the south of Robotone. Finally, we end our tour of the front with the Odessa Operational Strategic Group, which is responsible for Kherson, Krym, and the Black Sea. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about here. Ukraine is conducting significant offensive operations on the left or eastern bank of the Dnipro River. The AFU is operating BTR-4 amphibious armored vehicles on there, startling some Russian mill bloggers. 
a battalion's worth of personnel and equipment has made its way across the river. The Ukrainians made the advance in part because the minefields are less dense in the boggy areas of the Dnipro. In Krynke, 30 kilometers northeast of Kherson city, Ukraine made further advances and established new positions to the south and southwest of the settlement. Ukraine is also advancing in Poima, Pishchanivka, and Pitstepne. They are trying to establish, or have established, positions between Pitstepne and Kozachi Lahari. Ukrainian military observer Konstantin Moshovets stated that Ukrainian forces now control the area from the Antonievsky Rail Bridge, north of Poima, to the Antonievsky Road Bridge, north of Oleshke, allowing unfettered crossing of Ukrainian forces across the Dnipro. Yesterday, Ukraine cut the Oleshke-Novokakhovka road in at least two areas, and Ukrainian units have been seen as far south as the highway leading to Melitopol, about 10 to 12 kilometers behind the front line. According to the ISW, the Russians will likely face significant challenges in redeploying units from other sectors of the front should relatively combat ineffective Russian formations and currently uncommitted Russian forces in the Kherson direction prove sufficient to respond to the Ukrainian operations there. Redeployments of the considerable elements of the 7th VDV Division or other VDV formations and units in western Zaporizhia Oblast would likely disrupt Russian defensive operations there. The Russians continue to accumulate forces for sustaining the Russian offensive effort near Avdiivka and localized offensive operations in Kharkiv and Luhansk oblasts. Any potential Russian redeployment to the Kherson direction will likely degrade the Russian ability to sustain these other operations and efforts. Our own research found credible reports of hospitals being full in occupied Krym, and we've calculated that, based on geolocated footage of confirmed losses on both sides, Ukraine, while on the offensive in this direction, are taking fewer losses than Russians with a casualty ratio 0.9 to 1. Taking fewer losses while on the offensive is quite impressive during positional wars, possibly indicating a switch to maneuver warfare. We can also exclusively confirm, per our own sources on the ground, that reports of Ukrainians using low-flying helicopters to establish air superiority are accurate. Ukraine has concentrated its short-range air defense capabilities in this region, and it appears to be paying off. Unlike almost any other area on the front, Ukrainian troops aren't hampered by Russian fighter jets and helicopters. Ukraine was conducting shaping operations all summer for this operation by eliminating enemy air defense systems and continuing to make the Black Sea Fleet presence untenable on the peninsula. President Zelensky confirmed on November 8th that significant offensive operations are occurring in this area. And we'd just like to point out that in the summer, he said Ukraine will reach occupied Krym by the end of the year. We are not reporting additional information at this time to protect operational security. Moving on to the temporarily occupied territories. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ukrainian HIMARS struck in the central Donetsk city, the capital of Donetsk Oblast. The target? A building used by the Russians since 2014. They dubbed the Vladimir Zhoga Republican Center for Unmanned Systems of the Donetsk People's Republic. The building was used to train combat drone operators. Multiple people were killed and wounded. Aww. Sad. 
More information was released on the strike on Zalev shipyard over the weekend that destroyed a Russian corvette in occupied Krym. Ukraine used French-supplied Scalp-EG long-range ballistic missiles to destroy the ship, which was reportedly loaded with calibers at the time. The ship acted as a floating radar station as well and wasn't even fully deployed yet. Aww, even sadder! The attack on the shipyard, located near the Kerch Strait, was thought to be nearly impenetrable by Russia. The damage to the shipyard and loss of the ship is forcing even more Russian vessels out to the other side of the Black Sea into Russian-occupied Abkhazia, Georgia, or its less-known yet real name, Sakartvelo. There are unconfirmed reports on Twitter and Telegram that Sakartvelo forces have sent a DRG reconnaissance unit into Abkhazia on November 8th. Aw, the saddest! Multiple instances of explosions in occupied Krym were reported on Telegram channels, including in Akmesit, Simferopol, Akiar, Sevastopol, Bagbel Air Base, and Yevpatoria, or Kefe, today and yesterday. Smoke screens were deployed in Simferopol Bay, and the Kerch Bridge was temporarily closed to traffic. Russian telegram channels were acting a little bit deranged. In between claims that noises were due to military exercises or air defense, all caps messages were sent begging people to take cover. Aw, okay, no, I'm actually very happy about this one. Ukrainian forces used a missile to hit the so-called Dnieper grouping of forces headquarters in occupied Kherson Oblast on November 1st. Ukraine sent a combination of Storm Shadow cruise missiles and Neptune anti-ship missiles to Strilkova Kherson Oblast on the Arabat Spit. Unfortunately, the newly redeployed Colonel General Mikhail Teplinsky, the new and shiny commander of the Dnieper grouping of forces operating in Kherson, was not injured. Russian forces in occupied Kherson Oblast have been laying mines and burying explosives by gas lines, electronic substations, and other pieces of critical infrastructure. Ukraine's military intelligence reported that on November 7th. The HUR, or Ukrainian military intelligence, claimed Russian forces likely intend to destroy critical infrastructure in case they need to retreat. One has to wonder. The Russians did the same thing right before abandoning the right bank of the Dnipro. Are the Russians preparing to abandon the rest of Kherson? And if so, how would this affect their positions in Zaporizhia and occupied Krym? And with their people? Hmm. Occupation forces attached to railway logistics, on which the Russian army heavily relies, have been building new railroads on the so-called land bridge connecting the occupied territories to Russia. Satellite imagery confirms that the Russians have a sort of contingency plan in case the Kerch Bridge goes up in flames. Again. The longer the war goes on, the longer the Russians will have to entrench themselves, making Zaluzhny's op-ed quite relevant. On Thursday, Ukraine's missile group was busy. HIMARS destroyed the local headquarters of the FSB in Skadovsk, occupied Kherson, killing 10 senior FSB officials, wounding 10 others and possibly killing more. This is a severe blow to the FSB, wiping out several high-ranking occupation officials. General Alexander Tarnavsky, commander of the Tavria Operational Forces, said Ukraine destroyed a highly valuable S-300V4 advanced air defense system, likely with Atakum's cluster munitions. Ukraine has destroyed five S-400 air defense systems over the past few weeks, especially in occupied Krym. The HUR said a vehicle belonging to border guards was fired upon on the outskirts of the village of Ulitsa in Bryansk, just across the border with Sumy Oblast. Inside was FSB Lieutenant Colonel Sergei Shatey, who was eliminated. Shatey was the deputy head of the rare management department of the border troops of the FSB. Aw, sad. The HUR wasn't done. 
On Wednesday morning, Mikhailo Filipononko, deputy of the Separatist People's Council and former head of the People's Militia of the so-called Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, was killed when his car exploded near his home. We'd wish him all the best. But wait. No, we won't. And the HUR still wasn't done. Not by a long shot. Budanov is always watching. Andriy Yusov, spokesperson for the HUR, confirmed two Russian high-speed landing boats carrying air defense capabilities – Russia's been using these since their air defense systems have been so badly degraded – joined the Moskva at the bottom of the ocean. And were promoted to submarines. One Project 11770, Sierna-class boat, and one Project 11760, Shark-class boat, were in Uskaya Bay off the coast of Chernomorskia Kyrym when they were struck by Ukrainian USVs, or sea drones. The vessels were carrying two Tor M2 anti-aircraft missile systems, armored vehicles, including the BTR-82 armored personnel carrier, and 100 kilograms of explosives. The APCs likely had Russian soldiers in them. And now, they're right where they belong. As Sebastian from The Little Mermaid would say, under the sea. Six feet under the sea. To pull off the attack, Ukraine first launched a decoy UAV towards a fuel depot in Theodosia, which has become critically important as Russia moved its Black Sea fleet to the eastern part of the Karim Peninsula. It's unclear whether the drone hit the depot. Another Ukrainian drone entered the airspace in Chernomorske, At the same time, Neptune missile headed towards occupied Akiar, Sevastopol. Russians failed to shoot down the missile, which exploded next to its target, a Russian barrack. These attacks spooked the Russians, who deployed a smokescreen over the bay and turned all its attention towards the sky. Ukraine then sent a second Neptune missile towards Chernomorske, which was reportedly shot down. However, the Russians there were caught by surprise, allowing four sea drones to strike the two landing ships with no resistance. Mikhail Razvazhayev, illegal occupation governor and Bellatron, claimed that the Neptune missile over Akiar was shot down too. If we have learned one thing, it's that when Russians claim air defense is working, it's not. The destruction of these small, maneuverable ships is a big deal. The Black Sea Fleet only has one left. These ships are among the most effective for reinforcing troops in the north in occupied Kherson and protecting larger Black Sea Fleet vessels from Ukrainian sea drones. Meanwhile, Russians in occupied Kherson continue to beclown themselves. Yesterday, Ukrainian reconnaissance drones spotted a column of reinforcements arriving at a T-shaped intersection. The Ukrainian missiles forces quickly launched missiles at them using HIMARS, striking at the beginning and end of the long convoy. The Russians panicked and started to flee, but not fast enough. Heimers struck the middle of the column right after, destroying a truck carrying fuel and ammo, causing massive explosions. At least 25 Russians were killed and a further 20 were wounded. As one of our team members said, I've been out of the military for almost 50 years and would have still known better than to group my troops together like that. In occupied Akmeskit, Simferopol, mobilized Russians beat a Russian colonel Musurbekov on November 1st. After a six-day stay in an overcrowded hospital, he died of his injuries. The Russian soldiers put on civilian clothes and fled to Krasnodar Krai. How secure can that Kerch bridge be if they just drove across it? Moving on to the home front. On September 7th, we sat down with People's Deputy Inna Sofsun vice chair of the Holos Party and sponsor of draft law number 9103, an LGBTQI plus rights law in the Verkhovna Rada, or Ukraine's parliament. 
Um, I'm Ina Sosuna. I'm a member of Parliament in Ukraine. I'm uh, 38 years old. I'm a member of Parliament from the Liberal Opposition Party, called Wallace. Mm-hmm. Um, to an extent that opposition or non-opposition matters in Ukraine anymore. Uh, I did serve as first deputy minister of education and science in 2013 to us, but then it was 10. Uh, and then I was back to the university, and then in 2019 I was elected to the parliament. I actually served on the um, energy committee, mm-hmm. and I did a lot with the with the green deal and then renewables and reductions here in Ukraine. Uh, but I'm also very passionate about human rights. Uh, I've been quite significant portion of time dealing with uh, gender equality with women's rights in it. And then I think that uh, it naturally uh, expanded into LGBT rights and I've uh, been working with that issue uh, for quite some time, which uh, should enable you to introduce on legislation for same-sex partnerships here in Ukraine. Uh, I'm from Kharkiv. Okay. Uh, Kharkiv is the second biggest city in Ukraine. It's on the east of the country. It's literally 40 kilometers away from the Russian border. Sofsun, 38, introduced the draft law back in March, and while it's gotten some movement recently, it's still not a done deal. Sofsun proposed the law because of the tragic stories of Ukrainians who are invisible in the eyes of the government. As it stands today, the partners of gay, lesbian, bi, trans, queer, and intersex Ukrainian soldiers who are injured or killed on the front have no say and no voice afterwards. Partners can't visit their loved ones in the hospital, make medical decisions, in some cases plan or attend their funerals, inherit their property, and thus can't grieve. Because the truth is that even with the growing acceptance of LGBT people in Ukraine, it's still a big issue with people not willing to talk about this about political. Saying gay in politics is still kind of frowned upon. Mm-hmm. If they're in stable relations, so they have someone they love and care about, and then their first and loves and cares about him or her, then the government still doesn't recognize, there is no form of recognizing their relationships. Mm-hmm. So let's say the person gets wounded, is unconscious in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, quite high probability of that. His or her partner his or her loved one, mm-hmm. not be able to make medical decisions of him or her. So when the doctors would, they would have to consult a family member, like about, like, do we amputate or, or we try to save the leg or something. Multiple decisions where according to legislation and, and just human, you know, common sense, mm-hmm. they have to consult a family member. Mm-hmm. The partner will not be consulted. Uh, worst case scenario, if the person is killed in action, the partner will not be able to make any decisions about um, the funerals, about the body, or anything else. Uh, and unfortunately, we did have such cases. Of course. Key couples. Um, there was a case, uh, um, there is a, one member of the LGBT community organization whose partner was killed. And he, uh, I almost cried when I heard the third first, uh, when he was stabbing the journalist, Howard, when his partner was killed, uh, he was not allowed to see this body, which is just heartbreaking to, you know, cause, because he had to confront with himself and also to say goodbye to someone that he loved daily. So those are the problems that Bill will solve. The Ukrainian constitution, which can't be amended during wartime, says that marriage, as defined by the state, is between a man and a woman. In a clever workaround, the draft law creates a civil union regime where both same and opposite sex partnerships are recognized the same as a marriage is. Sofsun said that before the war, and still during it, Ukrainian politicians would think it unspeakable to say the word gay. Ironically, 
Russian president-slash-dictator Vladimir Putin's anti-gay rhetoric actually may be helping. One lawmaker said he supports the legislation because Putin is against it. We joked that it's kind of like Putin's strategy of invasion is backfiring, pushing Moldova, Georgia, and Ukraine all closer to NATO and the EU. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was just in town, so we asked whether the U.S. or any ally, for that matter, had issued a statement about the law. She couldn't think of one. We researched for many hours and couldn't find a single press briefing or statement issued by the U.S. It may have taken two months, but we finally got one this past week. A State Department spokesperson speaking on background said, quote, The United States supports marriage equality, civil unions, or other legal recognition of same-sex relationships globally. Draft Law Number 9103 grants both same-sex and opposite-sex couples the status of close relatives in lieu of marriage and aims to enable a range of financial, health care, and inheritance rights. Even during a full-scale war, the dignity of all people, including LGBTQI plus persons, should be upheld in cases of injury, disappearance, or death by allowing their loved ones slash family members visitation and inheritance. All Ukrainians bravely fighting to protect their democracy deserve to have partnerships recognized and legitimized. We commend this important step and urge Ukraine to move forward on this issue. Married or not, LGBTQI plus persons, couples and their families deserve full equality and access to legal protections and should be able to have their families legally recognized. End quote. For good measure, we also asked the Foreign Office of the United Kingdom, the EU, Canada and Australia. The Brits were even more blunt. Quote, the UK firmly supports the rights of LGBTQ people and condemns discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. End quote. That's what we love you for. Your candor. Australia's foreign ministry said, quote, The Australian embassy to Ukraine has been active in its support for LGBTQIA plus persons in Ukraine and referenced a statement in March advocating for equal rights for LGBTQIA plus people serving in the AFU. We are still waiting to hear back from Canada and the EU. Sovsun viewed Allied support as critical in speeding up the bill's passage. Given uh, the extent to which Ukraine is now dependent on our um, Western partners, this is critically important uh, to make sure that um, our foreign partners actually point out that, look, this is an issue that we care about. So if you, if you do this, this would be great. So I think this is the way uh, to move forward. I'm, I'm extremely grateful for all the media coverage of the bill in the foreign media that we got It was, it was immense, actually. It was Many people wrote about it. Uh, the major media outlets did mention it and so on and so forth. Yes. But it needs to be more of that so that everyone realizes that it's not just the request from the Ukrainian society, from the LGBT military, but it's also part of the, of, of the you know, uh, uh, of the international community uh, values uh, that we aspire to be part of. The law would apply to everyone eligible for marriage, whether in the military or not. The bill would also make the EU accession process much easier. We've sent the statements to Inna Sovsun's office and have published them on our substack with no paywall. Thank you to listeners Yaroslava Karina and April O'Leary for helping with today's reporting. Russians continue to attack first responders, angering our research assistant and proud retired firefighter John Stamp, and our whole team. On November 7th, they shelled Shostka in Sumy Oblast, causing a fire. Emergency response units immediately responded to the scene of the attack. 
During efforts to extinguish the fire, the Russian army, using tactics right out of the how-to-terrorist for dummies, repeatedly shelled the site, knowing that firefighters would already be working there. The firefighters were forced to evacuate, wait for the shelling to stop, and return to extinguish the fire. Some of their equipment was damaged, but thankfully, no one was injured. Other crews haven't been so lucky. Quick reminder to our listeners behind the rusty, dilapidated Iron Curtain. You're committing war crimes, and we have long-lasting memory. Top advisor to General Zaluzhny, Major Gennady Chestakov was killed celebrating his birthday. An unknown explosive device detonated in one of his gifts. Minister of Internal Affairs Ihor Klimenko released a statement saying Chestakov was showing his son a box with grenades inside he received as a gift. His 13-year-old son was seriously injured. Chestakov leaves behind four children and his wife, and an investigation is underway. Dispelling Russian propaganda, President Zelensky confirmed no elections will be held next year. Elections aren't allowed under the Ukrainian constitution during declared martial law. And no, former fake advisor to the president and current Kremlin clown Alexei Arostovich isn't running. Because there is no election. Otherwise, he'd run and fail miserably. A little note here, you might have noticed how a lot of foreign publications such as The Time and The New York Times are putting out articles titled something along the lines of Beyond the President Zelensky's Finest Hour. These articles are often written by either Russians or notorious Kremlin mouthpieces, as they're being presented as foreign journalists. These articles are aimed at pushing Zelensky out of the office and forcing the election. They're aimed at creating doubt in both your and Ukrainian minds about his efficiency, and they want to frame his presidency as one that's run its course, that is as far from the truth as it can be. Please stay diligent and don't fall for propaganda. Bridget Brink, U.S. ambassador in Ukraine, stated in an interview with Fox News that auditors attached to the embassy monitoring U.S. military, humanitarian and other aid hasn't been diverted. Brink admitted that corruption continues to be a problem and has existed for a long time. She added, however, that the full-scale invasion changed the public perception of corruption and it's no longer tolerated. She's right. It's not. Say goodbye to another mole. The Odessa Oblast Prosecutor's Office announced that a collaborator who was leaking locations of secret bases of the Ukrainian Special Operations Forces during the occupation of Kherson was sentenced to 15 years in prison in Odessa. Aww, rad! Prosecutors proved in court that after the Russians seized Kherson, the convict, with the help of a volunteer he knew, joined the operational and combat group of the Special Ops Forces, but then started spying after quite some time. He passed on the addresses of safe houses and personal data of special ops who performed combat missions in the temporarily occupied territory, and leaked locations of weapons and ammo caches. Russians launched two Iskander-M missiles at Kyiv. One missed its target, and the other was destroyed by the Patriot air defense system. Russia also launched 31 Shahed drones, and Ukraine managed to destroy 19 of them. Russia also used an Onyx P-800 anti-ship missile to attack Odessa, damaging warehouses there, and also killed civilians in Kherson city and Dnipropetrovsk oblast. Russian forces launched at least 10 drones on the city of Kharkiv overnight on November 3rd, causing multiple fires and damage to civilian infrastructure. The drones hit a local school, causing a fire that destroyed the roof and two of the building's floors. Fires also broke out at a residential building, a service station, and an administrative building. 
According to police, three Kharkiv residents were diagnosed with acute stress reaction. Speaking of acute stress, let's talk about Russia and defectively occupied Belarus. The Office of the Permanent Representative of Russia's President in the Central Federal District has approved a plan for regional authorities to recruit migrants, criminals, the unemployed, the bankrupt, and people in debt for military service. Vajnaya Istoriya, a Russian independent news outlet, as independent as can be in Russia, published a letter with a mandate and a special form classifying 22 categories of Russians that the authorities want to send to the front. Other categories included those with previous military or mercenary experience, those working at small or medium-sized businesses, new Russian citizens, and foreign citizens who've applied for Russian citizenship. What a great time to become a citizen of the Russian Federation. We hope Tara Reid is doing so well in Moscow. Carlsberg, a major Danish brewery, cut all ties with its Russian business after the Kremlin seized its Baltica subsidiary inside Russia. The Russian government is attempting to coerce the beer maker into an agreement that gives cover to the theft. CEO Jacob Arup Andersen said that, quote, There is no way around the fact that they have stolen our business in Russia, and we are not going to help them make that look legitimate. We are not going to enter into a transaction with the Russian government that somehow justifies them taking over our business illegally, end quote. Carlsberg has been trying to sell its subsidiary since last year and wrote down $1.41 billion in assets. It had eight breweries and about 8,400 employees. Hmm, maybe this explains why Nestle refuses to seize operations there, but still doesn't justify it. On Friday, November 3rd, Ukrainian National Agency on Prevention of Corruption designated Nestle an international sponsor of war. The Swiss corporation is one of the largest food producers in the world, doing business in 187 countries. Nestle continues to operate in Russia, supplying goods to the terrorist state and helping Russians expand its production base. In 2021, it paid more than $25 million in taxes to Russia and refuses to publish its tax payments there for 2022 and 2023. Only slightly more than 2% of the company's profit comes from the Russian market. Nestle says they're staying to provide Russians basic necessities and to take care of their 7,000 Russian employees. Last time we checked, Purina Pet Food, Nespresso Coffee, and Kit Kats, all still available in Russia, aren't basic necessities. We also doubt Nestle cares about their employees. They regularly hire and fire hundreds of thousands around the world every year. In 2021, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled, on a technicality, that Nestle couldn't be liable for employing, literally, slaves. The losing plaintiffs were alleged former child laborers from Mali. During World War II, the company supplied food to Hitler's army. So, this is pretty on-brand for them, as it turns out. Nestle joined several other multinational corporations on the international sponsor of war list, including beverage company PepsiCo, candy manufacturer Mars International, aw, my friend works there, tobacco giant Philip Morris, snack behemoth Mondelez, and personal care conglomerates Procter & Gamble and Unilever. Hi, it's Rob, and I have something to add here. Having worked at a relatively high level in the corporate world, and knowing many others who do as well, there is absolutely no reason corporations need to be in the Russian market. I know of several international companies that quietly pulled out of the Russian market that haven't been publicized. 
there's absolutely no reason for any of these companies who derive a tiny portion of their profits from Russia from continuing operations there. It's almost impossible for consumers to boycott the companies who remain due to the sheer number of brands they own. And time to put my Farm D hat on here. Other great American traditions, namely rampant diabetes and big pharma, give me hope that these companies will be punished. The arrival of revolutionary weight loss and anti-diabetic drugs, Ozempic, semaglutide for injection, Wagovi, semaglutide for injection, Monjaro, terzapatide for injection, and Rebelsis, semaglutide oral tablets, mimic the hormones that make you feel full and are pushing the stocks of junk food manufacturers down. The stock prices of Nestle, Mondelez, Unilever, PepsiCo, Mars, and Procter & Gamble are down 12, 12.5, 14, 14, 15.5, and 2.5% respectively over the past six months. P&G insiders are selling stock, which isn't a great sign for the company. Back to Yulia. The UK Defense Intelligence from November 8th said that persistent railway sabotage in Russia challenges authorities and affects military logistics during the, uh, special military operation. Russian authorities have taken legal action against 137 young individuals. 76 cases of railway sabotage had reached court since the full-scale invasion began. With virtually all methods of overt dissent banned in Russia, sabotage continues to appeal to a minority of young people as a method of protest against the war. Here is a follow-up from last week's story that Russia moved air assets further behind the front line, including to Taganrog Air Base, following the attack and strike on two bases in occupied Donetsk and Berdyansk. We'd like to point out that Taganrog is only 121 kilometers from the front line and within the range of Ukrainian weapon systems. Russia, however, is banking on Western indecisiveness, still falling for Russia's posturing and empty threats of supposed escalations which prevents Ukraine from using these weapons for striking legitimate military targets within the Russian Federation. They don't want Ukraine to lose, but are unwilling to do what it takes to allow Ukraine to win. Speaking of winning, on the night of November 11th, Ukrainian HUR used saboteurs to blow up the Katovsk gunpowder plant in Tambov Oblast, Russia, among Russia's largest, and derail freight cars in Rezan. Ukrainian drones successfully struck the Mechanical Engineering Design Bureau in Kolomna, right outside Moscow, causing a massive fire. The bureau designs and manufactures Iskander-M and Kinjal hypersonic missiles. On November 8, saboteurs blew up the Azurny Mining and Processing Plant in Buryatia, and on November 7, explosions were reported in Taganrog, where the Russians moved their aircraft. Pavel Latushko presented more evidence to the International Criminal Court that Dark Potato Prince slash dictator of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, is directly involved in the forced deportation of Ukrainian children from occupied territories. Latushko was former culture minister of Belarus and fled the country following his involvement in the 2020 protests against the regime. In a statement to the Associated Press outside The Hague, he said, quote, we shared additional evidence proving Lukashenko's direct participation in the unlawful deportation of Ukrainian children to Belarus as leader of the so-called Union State of Belarus and Russia. The evidence included previously unknown details of at least 37 Ukraine children that are subjected to pro-Russian re-education camps on Belarusian territory, and identified leaders and members of both state and non-state organizations involved. 
Latushka handed over evidence that more than 2,100 children had been forcibly deported from Russian-occupied territories in Ukraine to Belarus. The Belarusian Red Cross is also involved in child deportations. Latushka previously held leadership positions within the dictatorship, including leading the Ministry of Culture. He joined the opposition movement led by Maria Kolesnikova, Veronika Tsepkala, and Svetlana Tsikhanovskaya. Tsikhanovskaya, Latushka, and Tsepkala, along with many opposition figures, fled to Poland following a brutal crackdown on dissent by Russia-backed Lukashenko. The regime tried to deport Kolesnikova to Ukraine in September 2020, but she famously destroyed her passport at the border crossing. She remains in solitary confinement and in poor health to this day. Other opposition leaders were sentenced to lengthy jail terms in absentia. It is really important to note here. Unlike much of the West, Ukrainians don't view Belarusians anymore as particularly brave or helpful. We appreciate the Belarusian volunteer battalions within the Ukrainian army immensely. However, we're starting to think that Belarusian civilians are looking for as many excuses as Russians. And it is starting to look like the so-called Belarusian opposition is really not willing to do anything themselves, but is happy to berate Ukrainian politicians, including Zelensky, for not coming to rescue and liberating Belarus and doing their job for them. Ukrainians have toppled three pro-Russian dictators since 1990, developed their civil society, built consensus over three decades that Ukraine should be independent from Russia, including in Donetsk, Luhansk, and Krym, and have continued to grow increasingly intolerant of corruption, especially since the full-scale invasion begun. Belarusians, meanwhile, maintained largely favorable views of Russia until widespread protests erupted in 2020 against the Lukashenko regime. During those protests, Ukrainians uplifted Belarusians and supported them immensely, sharing posts about them on social media and spreading awareness in the world. Ukraine also accepted many Belarusian refugees as they were fleeing after the election. Hence the presence of so many Belarusian battalions. In the beginning of the full-scale invasion, we had high hopes for Belarus, and we really defended them in front of the world. We were incredibly happy to see railway sabotage resistance and the words of support. But two years into a full-scale invasion and a whole lot of nothing. Well, our hopes and dreams are now... Much less hopeful. Next up, news worldwide. On November 8th, President Zelensky praised yesterday's recommendation by the European Union executive to invite Kyiv to membership talks as a historic step. Indeed it is. It's been a long time coming. The recommendation by the European Commission is an important milestone on Kyiv's journey towards Western integration. The Commission said the talks should formally be launched once Kyiv satisfies remaining conditions related to reigning in corruption, adopting a lobbying law in line with EU standards, and strengthening safeguards for national minorities. Zelensky vowed to press on with the necessary reforms. Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission, visited Kharkiv and Kyiv on November 4th. She was greeted with a minute-long standing ovation as she spoke to the Verkhovna Rada. Von der Leyen has visited Ukraine 13 times since the full-scale invasion began. Prick of a prestidigitator and principal provincial peasant of Hungary, so many P's in this writing, Viktor Orban has promised to prevent Ukraine's succession and the 50 billion euro aid package to Ukraine. 
However, the EU announced this week that it was getting sick of Orban's obstinance and is working on a plan to release the aid without his approval. One member of the European Parliament said that the EU won't be blackmailed over the issue. I also hope the EU just will not be blackmailed by Hungary anymore, period. In late October, TV Toronto uncovered open communications between German Bundestag members and FSB agents. According to Sergei Sumlenny, managing director of the European Resilience Initiative Center in Berlin, claimed this isn't a fluke. German voters don't view it as a liability when their Bundestag members are pictured with Russian agents. Like Austria, Germany's intelligence services are infiltrated at the highest levels by Russian spies. It seems like Germans are reluctant to say Auf Wiedersehen to the Russian Empire. We know that uh, Germany's intelligence services have been pretty blind regarding the Russian influence. We know that uh, the German uh, intelligence services have been infiltrated by the Russians to pretty high levels uh, this year. One of the department ads, if I'm not mistaken, of BND uh, is a German intelligence service which uh, deals with the foreign threats. Uh, it's actually like um, getting information from abroad. Um, he was uh, arrested as a Russian spy. It was like like a half a year ago. And uh, we know that uh, the the former head of the German Bundesverfassungsschutz, uh, the uh, intelligence service which deals with internal threats, like sabotage, spear, espionage, etc. Like it's counter-sabotage and counter-espionage agency. They don't act abroad, but they act a lot inside of Germany, protecting our interests uh, from hostile intelligence services. Uh, like he completely derailed, uh, turning into a full supporter of AFD, uh, conspiracy theorists, etc. And he was, for years, under Angela Merkel, he was the head of Bundesverfassungsschutz. So just think what kind of people he could have planted on important positions. How can these deputies uh, get pictured on like one picture with the FSB um, employees or FSB-connected people and there are no consequences? Well, that's very easy. Uh, first of all, because uh, the deputies of German parliament, they're not state servants, they're not like, they're not uh, bureaucrats, they are being elected by the people. And as long as they don't violate the law directly, and there is no law in Germany not to have your friends uh, FSB uh, officers, like, um, that's how it works. Uh, they can only be punished by their voters who will not vote for them after having seen them with a Russian spy. The problem is that obviously for many of their voters, their deputy being pictured with uh, the Russian uh, agent is not a negativism. It's nothing bad, quite the opposite. It's something good. That is a proof that they are really doing what they're preaching like uh, decoupling Germany from the U.S. and coupling Germany with Russia. The worst moment will be when uh, Putin resigns or gets killed or dies or disappears and someone like Alexei Navalny or Mishustin or whatever, like a nice-looking guy who speaks good English and who is not from FSB, not from the army, and even an oppositional or an economist, will take Putin's place. Then they will all shout in crowds, look, Russia has changed, there is no terrible Putin anymore. We need to use this chance, to use this window of opportunities to support Russian civil society, to support Russian voices, to support Russian opposition. And all these people who are now nesting in Berlin, 
from the Russian institutions like uh, Ekaterina Schulman or, I don't know, uh, the people from Carnegie or the others, they will be on the front of this movement like of rebuilding relations between Moscow and Berlin because nobody in Berlin really wants to cut all ties. To be clear, the majority of Germans strongly oppose Russia and even more importantly support Ukraine. We spoke with a German physician in Hamburg back in August who expressed her revulsion for Russia-backed fascist party, Alternative for Deutschland, and the hesitancy of the German government to send Leopard main battle tanks and Taurus missiles. However, a significant minority of Germans concentrated in former East Germany distrust the Western alliance. German military historian Sönke Neitzel claims a significant part of East Germany's population, quote, still considers the U.S. to be the real enemy, end quote and as a result, distrust Western media as well. Germany has a Russophilia problem, and it dates back centuries. The Romanov dynasty, which ruled the Muscovy Empire from 1613 to 1917, became a branch of Oldenburg dynasty under the name of Holstein Gottorp Romanov. Many of its members were born in Germany and spoke Russian with an accent. Tsarina Anna I, who ruled from 1730 to 1740, allowed Germans to rule Russia by allowing her key advisor to surround himself with Germans. Princess Sophie Friedrike Auguste von anhalt zerbst dornburg who later became Catherine II, completed the brutal OG annexation of Krim in 1783, overthrew the Khanate of Tat-i-Kirim Vedest-i-Kiptak, which ruled Krim for 350 years. The Khanate was the longest surviving Khanate descended from the Mongols. By the 1800s, half of all governors and high-ranking army officers in the Moscovite Empire were of German descent. Germans, more than any other Western power, migrated to Muscovy and became members of the elite. The empire needed the technological and military expertise to continue to expand, and they were happy to provide it. By 1913, about 2.4 million Germans lived in Russia. Germany was the first country to establish diplomatic relations with the USSR following the Red Revolution in 1917. Indeed, during World War I, the German Kaiser, desperate for Russia to exit the war, smuggled an obscure radical, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, from exile in Switzerland to Finland, then part of the Russian Empire, via sealed train car. Ulyanov, now known as Lenin, usurped the revolution and turned Russia into a Marxist-Leninist empire. The Germans paid Lenin 11 million Reichsmarks before October 1917 and 15 million Reichsmarks after. True to his word, Lenin exited the war in 1917 by signing the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. From 1926 to 1936, the Soviet Union received more than 4 billion Reichsmarks worth of industrial equipment and machinery from Germany. The USSR used raw materials, agricultural products, and gold to pay for the shipments. More than a billion Reichsmarks worth of Soviet gold was brought to Germany. In September 1939, Germany and the Soviet Union invaded Poland after signing the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact to divide Poland. More than Germany's annexation of the Sudetenland, which was welcomed by Austria, the erasure of Poland from the map triggered World War II. While signing the pact, Stalin said, quote, We can't allow Germany to lose, end quote. Hitler and the USSR cooperated right up to Hitler's invasion of the USSR. 
Muscova sent Germany 600,000 tons of cotton, 1 million tons of grain, much of it from Ukraine and Sakartvelo, and 1 million tons of oil, much of it from the Caucasus and the Balkan oil fields. Soviet economic aid helped thwart the British blockade of Germany. We all know how this ended, with the effective Soviet occupation of Germany, which lasted for 40 years. You'd think the brutal occupation of East Germany would put an end to their Russophilia, but you'd be wrong. In 1970, West Germany built a, you guessed it, a pipeline from the Soviet Union. German Chancellor at the time, Helmut Kohl, who led Germany from 1982 to 1997, had warm relations with Boris Yeltsin and Vladimir Putin and helped create the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. His successor, Gerhard Schröder, Oh, I love that guy. Who ruled from 1998 to 2005, deepened ties between Russia, joining the boards of several Russian gas companies after leaving office. His successor, the infamous Angela Merkel, chancellor from 2005 to 2021, continued to build the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which, slowed by U.S. sanctions, was almost completed by the full-scale invasion. Although she had a portrait of Catherine II in her office, Schröder published articles criticizing her policy of isolating Moscow in favor of Ukraine. Instead of staying silent on the cause, Merkel expressed no regrets on her pro-Russia policies after leaving office. It's no wonder Olaf Scholz, current chancellor, still refuses to send Taurus long-range missiles capable of destroying the Kerch Bridge. The Russlanddeutsche, or German Russophiles, concentrated in the eastern part of Germany, yes, there is a word for them, the Russian Germans, are still influenced by decades of Russian propaganda. They're particularly susceptible to Russian narratives and continue to vote that way. Houthi rebels in Yemen have shot down an MK-9 Reaper drone operated by the United States over the Red Sea. The MK-9 is a hunter-killer drone designed for high-altitude surveillance over long distances and periods of time. The U.S. operates the drones over Black Sea to collect intelligence on Russian assets there. The U.S. launched 50 counterattacks against Iranian forces and their proxies in the region. Iran backs the Yemeni terrorist organization along with terrorist organization Hamas. Speaking of the U.S., we have election results from Tuesday. Despite Biden's unpopularity, Democrats overperformed in statewide and local elections across the country, including in official swing states Pennsylvania and Arizona. A Democrat was elected to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, maintaining the 5-2 Democratic majority there. Democrats in New Jersey flipped five seats in the already overwhelmingly Democratic State Assembly and kept their strong majority in the state Senate. In Virginia, Democrats regained control of the state House of Delegates and maintained their majority in the state Senate. Voters in Ohio enshrined abortion access into their constitution and legalized marijuana. Popular Democratic governor of Kentucky, Andy Bashir, easily won a second term in deeply Republican Kentucky, home state of U.S. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. In Phoenix, Arizona, measures backed by Democrats passed, providing funding for schools, roads, and emergency services. Local elections across the country largely rejected religious zealots running for school boards. In some bright spots for the party, Republicans won many races for mayor in cities and towns in the Northeast. Russia was kicked out of the International Court of Justice this week, which settles international disputes between countries. Good. 
Further debasing itself, Russia is begging countries it previously sold military equipment to for spare parts. Earlier this year, for example, Russia asked Pakistan, Egypt and Brazil if it could buy back previously sold weapons. Meanwhile, Ukraine received two Lithuanian NASAMS air defense systems and a third Patriot air defense system on its way. Canada just announced another $385 million military aid package to Ukraine as well. During a meeting with President-slash-Dictator of Kazakhstan, Putin butchered the pronunciation of Takayev's name. During these bilateral summits, delegates usually speak Russian. Well, when it was Takayev's turn to speak, he spoke in Kazakh, causing the Russian delegates, including Ankalapidgian Kremlin mouthpiece Dmitry Peskov, to scramble for earpieces. You can hear them reacting in this clip. The Russians looked pretty pissed, and we loved to see it. Don't be fooled by Takayev's shenanigans, though. He hasn't changed his policies of quietly helping Russia evade sanctions, and is likely using a weaker Russia to play Russia, China, and the US off each other. And finally, finally, F-16s have arrived at a training facility in Romania so Ukrainian pilots can begin their training. Training is expected to take a couple months before the F-16s will be flying in Ukrainian airspace. Ukrainian pilots have already begun their training. Before we leave, we want to thank our founding subscriber Adam G. and subscribers Daniel L., H. L. Gazes, Elmer D., J. Johnson, and Loot for supporting our work on Substack. And that's the brief for today. Remember to check your sources and don't fall for propaganda. Join us on YouTube and TikTok for more Ukraine content and live news reports. And if you haven't already, please consider subscribing to our Substack or Patreon to help our work. Be like Adam, Daniel, Elmer and Jay Johnson. We'll be back on Monday with more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone.